This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome. This is Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You know, it's been a modern mantra of sorts that greed is good. Survival of the fittest. Even our biology gets cast as selfish, as in the selfish gene. The idea being that selfishness and competition are somehow innate in all of us, in all species, that it's essential to our survival and to our evolution. But, you know, is it really? Is selfishness the natural way of things? Science journalist Zoe Keane is joining us on the show this week. Hey, Zoe, welcome. Hey, Natasha. Yes, I stumbled across this bizarre story of a man who developed an obsession with altruism and how it came to exist. He even came up with a mathematical equation for love. (sighs) But as we'll hear, he ended up paying the ultimate price. Along the way, we'll meet some pioneering scientists who have challenged the dogma that competition is king. The whole Western world took an individualistic swing at about the same time in the 20th century. Certainly economics, think of homo economicus, the the rational actor model. The idea that everything is selfish at the end of the day and that our task is to interpret varieties of selfishness. It's not as if nice behaviors didn't exist. You still had individuals helping each other. But now the way to understand them was that basically it was all being manipulated by selfish genes. It's a very difficult dogma to break because its logic seems to be pretty strong. And yet, increasingly, we are finding more and more evidence in nature that that's not the case. And that, in fact, the philosophy of the selfish gene, which seemed to us like very hard-nosed science, might be more a reflection of the cultural mores of the day, you know, of the logic of markets translated into nature rather than just a naive description of what happens in nature. It's difficult to feel comfortable in nature if that's what you feel is going on all around you. If you go outside and go for a walk in the park or go on a a hike, do you feel like you're in hostile territory or do you feel like you're in some sense one with nature? I started out with a problem, the problem of altruism. In religion, the question often gets asked, how can a kind God let suffering exist? In biology, that question, it kind of gets flipped and it becomes, how can kindness exist and evolve if things must compete to survive? And this is a problem that plagued Darwin when he developed his theory of evolution by natural selection. So natural selection was the theory, of course, that explained how the world came to be bursting with such a diversity of life. It was the idea that specific traits or behaviours or characteristics that help a species survive and reproduce in their environment get passed on to the next generation. And traits that donate this mission, well... They get weeded out. And it seems that selfishness was considered to be one of those traits, that looking after your own interests above others was pretty much a winning strategy when it comes to evolution. Yes, but there was a spanner in the works for Darwin, the existence of kindness. And the problem he encountered was that if you imagine 
a pro-social individual who is doing good things for others, and then imagine that organism's opposite, a selfish individual, which is taking social benefits but not providing them, well, who's most fit? Who's most fit? It's the selfish individual. Professor Sloan Wilson of the Evolution Institute has spent most of his career investigating the origins of altruism. So if natural selection is all about individuals surviving and reproducing better than other individuals, then that seems to provide an advantage to selfishness over altruism. And Darwin was unable to explain all of the behaviors that in human terms we would associate with morality and goodness. So this was not just a problem. This was a major problem. This problem was still unsolved when our story starts. It's 1940s America, and a young man, raised in poverty by his mother during the Great Depression, is in search of a big idea. He has a dream to leave his mark on science. George Price started his career working as a chemist on the Manhattan Project to build an atomic bomb. Price was an eccentric, a maverick, a staunch atheist. While working on the project, he fell in love with Julia, a biologist who was his polar opposite, conservative and Catholic. They got married and had two children. And it looked like things were going well for the family. First daughter, Anna Marie, was born in 1948, and then a second one, Kathleen, came soon after that. Oren Harmon is a historian of science and author of The Price of Altruism. But all was not well with the family, and I think there's a quotation in one of the letters where George said to his wife that he would rather the daughters become prostitutes than nuns, which was a reflection of him saying to his wife, you know, I've had enough with this religion. The marriage, maybe doomed from the start, disintegrated. Price picked up stumps and left the family in 1953. A few years later, he moved to New York's East Village and got a job with IBM. And is doing a lot of drugs in the village, a lot of uppers and downers, barbiturates, and sort of trying to make a name for himself. He's really unknown kind of desperate for some kind of great scientific or technological breakthrough to make his name. He was kind of maniacal. He really wanted to make a name for himself, but he was so strange and offbeat, and people didn't quite understand who he was and what he wanted. George Price was prone to grandiose thinking. This tendency was probably not helped when, after a cancer diagnosis, he had to have his thyroid removed. And Price wasn't great at taking his thyroid medication, which led to erratic moods and bouts of depression. He was corresponding with, at one point, with four Nobel Prize winners or future Nobel Prize winners in different fields, in neurophysiology with Eccles, in genetics with Herman Muller, with Shockley and Bardeen and, and Shannon in information theory, and with the economist Samuelson, each on a different problem in a different field and offering to them some kind of magical solution to a great conundrum in the field, but writing sort of, you know, out of nowhere. They had no idea who this person was. During all this time, he's trying to make a name for himself, but he hasn't seen his daughters in about 10 years. And as his daughters grew older, he started to muse on his own childhood during the Great Depression. An obsession was growing, a scientific obsession with the origins of family. 
and he understood that had it not been for his mother's grit, his own family no doubt would have disintegrated too. And yet now he himself had abandoned his wife and his daughters and he becomes obsessed with why, why, why is that? What allowed for some families to stick together while others collapsed? And so this becomes a preoccupation and a kind of obsession. And he decides to leave everything behind and to get on a boat and to go to England. In London, he gets to work, haunting public libraries and giving himself a crash course in evolutionary biology. He writes to his daughter, this is going to be my big paper on the evolutionary origin of the human family, precisely after having abandoned his family himself and his wife and his little, little daughters, and without a hint or a tinge of irony, signs off with love, daddy. George Price begins corresponding with well-known biologist William Hamilton. Hamilton was developing an evolutionary theory about why families care for each other. And then, like a bolt from the blue, an idea comes to Price in the form of a mathematical equation. It illustrates how traits that promote fitness get selected for in evolution and are carried across generations, including the trait of being kind to one another. His equation? It solved Darwin's problem. So Price writes down the equation and he looks at it and it seems to him something of a miracle. So how did this equation work? What Price showed in his equation was that natural selection could work at all the different levels of the biological hierarchy simultaneously. It could work at the level of the gene, it could work at the level of the cell, at the level of the individual, and at the level of the group. This is what was new. The idea that groups like a herd or a village, not just individuals, could be acted on by the forces of evolution. Before this, that idea was dismissed by most biologists. And what his equation could teach us was at what level of the biological hierarchy is natural selection working most strongly at any given time. And if it's working most strongly at the level of the group, then true selflessness, true altruism can evolve. What this means is when members of a group lift each other up rather than tear each other down, the whole group can flourish and reproduce. And by group, we might mean family or tribe or neighbourhood or nation or even a cage full of chooks. So uh, a poultry breeder named uh, William Buer wanted to select a better breed of egg-laying hen. This is David Sloan-Wilson. And he did it in two ways. In both cases, the hens lived in groups. Uh, actually, they were housed in cases. And in the first experiment, he selected the most productive hen within each cage. And in the second experiment, he selected the most productive cages collectively and used those hens to breed the next generation of chickens. So surely, by breeding with the most productive individuals, that is, the hens that lay the most eggs, you'd think you'd get more eggs overall. Well, this wasn't the case. If you select the most productive individual in a group, you're selecting the biggest bully. And yes, that's highly heritable. And so after five generations, you've bred a nation of psychopaths. And they're murdering each other and plucking each other's feathers and they're not laying eggs. William Muir's second experiment produced quite a different result. Instead of breeding from the individuals that laid the most eggs, he bred from the hens that came from the most productive cages overall. In the second experiment, by selecting the most productive cages, you were selecting the most docile 
docile and cooperative hens or did not interfere with each other. And these cooperative hens laid more eggs overall than the psychopathic chickens. George Price's equation described this group dynamic very well. So that is so descriptive of what also takes place in nature. And there's many, many examples from the business world of people who employ strategies that are good for their own advancement, but not for the good of the company. Under certain very specific conditions, natural selection can see a group of people as an individual. It can look to natural selection like it's an individual because it's so cohesive and so cooperative. It's like, you know, a mound of termites or, you know, ants that come together to uh, create a superorganism. When that kind of cohesion exists in nature, then a group can be almost like an individual. And in that sense, the individuals within the group turn into sort of cells within a body. They each have a function which serves the higher good. And the higher good is a more cooperative, happier, healthier population. Back in 1968, George Price knew he was onto something big, Oren Harmon. And so he walks off the street into the biostatistics department at University College London. And he introduces himself, my name is George Price, and have a look at this equation. And off the street, you know, a complete unknown. And within the hour, he is given keys to his own office and a visiting professorship in what was, at that time, one of the great centers in the world for the study of population dynamics. And it seems quite unlikely to him that of all the great minds ever since Darwin, it should be him, little George Price, who isn't even trained in the field, to have cracked this very stubborn problem of where altruism comes from. But almost as quickly, things started to unravel for George Price. Really unravel. And so he begins thinking about it as a kind of coincidence and begins contemplating other coincidences that had happened to him during his lifetime. Very strange things, like he'd had four girlfriends whose name was Anne. The last four digits of his phone number were 2399, which to him meant that signified like a minute before midnight. It should be you know, 2359, but it doesn't matter. He was, you know, he was a little bit manic. And he multiplied all these coincidences and reached an astronomical number, one over 10 to the 30th, a minuscule, tiny little chance that all of these things should have happened to him by chance. And so he ran out of his apartment down Little Titchfield Road and into All Souls at Langham, into the evangelical church and fell on his knees and literally on the spot became a Christian, having come to the realization that a God must have chosen him to tell some great truth to humanity. And that truth was, where does kindness come from? And there we will leave George Price for a moment. It's 1970. He's on his knees before the cross in a state of rapture before his world truly crumbles. Oh, I don't know what to make of uh, George Price's story at this point, Zoe. It is wild. Yeah, it, it really is. But now I want you to meet 
another scientist. And this scientist, like Price, she believes that kindness and love and collaboration, they're really worthy of study in evolutionary biology. Okay, so we're fast-forwarding from the 1970s now. It's 1997, and Professor Joan Roughgarden is an accomplished biology professor at Stanford University. Joan is in her 50s, and she's about to transition as a transgender woman. And she's just arrived at her first ever Pride March. And in San Francisco, these are really huge productions. <laughs> it was really quite remarkable. It was obvious to me that there was a huge amount of diversity and gender expression and sexuality that was really being exhibited. And uh, at the time, I don't think I even knew any gay people at Stanford. Gay folks were not well represented among the faculty and on the campus generally. And the curriculum didn't mention the existence of species in which there was natural same-sex sexuality being expressed. Not only that, same-sex sexuality was seen as a bizarre anomaly by most scientists. Ultimately, it didn't produce babies, so what was the point of it? But going to the Pride March got Joan Roughgarden thinking. Why was science so silent on the group of people she was marching with? When she started to dig, she made an interesting discovery about the frequency of same-sex sexual behaviour in nature. But it became clear that even in the primary literature, there was a huge number of cases that had been documented, but just not reported. The real tip-off that something fishy was going on with the biological study of gender and sexuality had to do with the pejorative descriptions that the biologists were using for the very phenomena they were observing. They were embarrassed almost to be writing about same-sex sexuality in the very species they were describing. It's as though they there was a stigma and they were afraid of catching the stigma. Professor Roughgarden thought she'd find enough to publish a pamphlet on animal same-sex sexuality. In fact, she had a book's worth. In 2004, she published Evolution's Rainbow, Diversity, Gender and Sexuality in Nature and People. The book issued a challenge to her profession over what she saw as its narrow-minded lens. Among mammals, you certainly get a lot of same-sex sexuality. There's no doubt about that. And this has evolved multiple times. There's a, a real social role for same-sex sexuality. And among primates specifically, uh, it's most developed in the primate groups with the most complex social systems. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how that plays out and what same-sex sexuality looks like and what role it might play? So it's, it's quite variable. I've personally photographed Elephants, male elephants mating. You can find lots of pictures of the charismatic vertebrates, the lions, tigers, giraffes. There's a misimpression sometimes that same-sex sexuality involves uh, a power dynamic, uh, that it's like a rape or something. But it definitely isn't. It's a bonding kind of a behavior. And I, these two lions, by golly, you know, one of them nuzzles up next to the other and one lies down and then the other mounts it and then they get up and they uh, stay together and, and so they're, they're really good buddies. Professor Roughgarden found many examples of same-sex sexuality in other species, from those male lions that mount each other and cuddle after, to oyster catchers, shorebirds who often live in a menage a trois. 
Research shows that if the threesome all have sex with each other, they're more successful at raising their chicks as a team than if they only have heterosexual couplings within the trio. And then there are the bonobos. You've probably heard of our hypersexual primate cousins who just love to get it on. And in those, all the animals participate in same-sex sexuality. They're having sex all the time. <laughs> it's really quite remarkable. And they all have uh, a rather low level of aggression as a result. So they uh, have a lot of very amusing write-ups about the bonobos <laughs> and how they use sex as a social mediating device. By turning a blind eye to same-sex sexuality in nature, Joan Roughgarden sensed that evolutionary biologists might be missing a trick. Right, I mean, right off the bat, it was clear that, that a lot of these behaviours were reducing competition. Same-sex sexuality uh, reduces it. It's a way of building friendships, a way of building bonds. And the, the, the fundamental challenge to same-sex sexuality is not so much that they do it, but why they do it. Why are they not competing? Why are they not fighting with each other? Why are they building friendships? So why aren't they being selfish? To hark back to the selfish gene, you know, here we have animals definitely being friends, definitely working together. So the sexuality and also the gender expressions all involve contexts in which there's cooperation taking place rather than competition. And it's like they're vehicles to facilitate and realize cooperation. In Joan's mind, competition plays a role, but science was blind to another fundamental fuel of evolution. So fixated were biologists on the notion that competition was an evolutionary driver of success. They were blind to collaboration. And it didn't help that one of the most extensive examples of collaboration made them blush. Same-sex sexuality. Professor Oren Harman from Bar-Ilan University. Science that we think of as a kind of very objective description of reality, something that's driven by logic and observation and not tainted by politics or by ideology, Time and time again, when you look at the history of science, you see that that's not actually the case. You know, ever since that very famous popular science book, The Selfish Gene, a kind of way of looking at nature has really captured the field in evolutionary theory. And it really is this notion of stark individualism, that we can explain every behavior that we encounter in nature by looking at the logic of selfishness. Oren Harmon describes Joan as a maverick, and he believes her work is expanding on the legacy of George Price, whose story we started earlier. And don't worry, we haven't forgotten about Price. He's still on his knees in front of that crucifix. The Price equation showed that we didn't, we didn't think about genes entirely in selfish terms. There could be also cooperative genes. And what Joan is doing is really expanding that, and in a way, trying to break through from this, you know, very dominant philosophy and to show that there might be other logics in the history of the evolution of life on our planet. Logics that are much more cooperative, that have to do with helping one another, with have to do with the dynamics of cohesion within a group. I think that Joan, you know, is a maverick. Um, She's a radical, you know, and she's a maverick. It's kind of in a way that is reminiscent of George. He was really an individual. And 
knowing Joan, you sort of get the same feeling. You know, she's she's her own person, and she will go with her truth until the end, notwithstanding. And in fact, she has been attacked for many of her ideas, but that doesn't matter to her because she sees a path, she sees a truth, and she goes after it. But doing this work comes at a cost. Joan was considered outside of the mainstream. And as for George, let's return to him in 1970. He's come up with his magnum opus, a mathematical equation that describes how traits, like altruism, evolve and promote the survival of groups. But not all is rosy. Altruism exists in the world, yes. But George comes to understand it's not driven purely by good. He comes to the conclusion that altruism must always be a form of selfishness because if it evolved, then it evolved because it was adaptive for those who held it, for those organisms who held it. And therefore, if it was adaptive, what that means is that it helped their fitness and therefore was selfish rather than selfless. So altruistic behavior may look like it's a form of kindness, but actually that saying, that terrible saying, scratch an altruist and watch an egoist bleed, that seemed to price an inescapable conclusion from the mathematics. If altruism had evolved to promote our survival, then it must ultimately exist for selfish reasons, to promote the transmission of our own genes into the next generation. Even when we were doing good things for people we weren't genetically related to, altruism was motivated by selfish reasons. This profoundly depressed George Price. But Joan Roughgarden, Professor Emerita at Stanford University, doesn't agree with George's pessimism. Altruism can still be valuable and pure. You can increase your frequency in the gene pool through altruistic behavior. That doesn't mean it's selfish because it was manifestly altruistic at the behavioral level. You actually did help somebody at some cost to yourself. So that is altruism. So it doesn't, yes, it I, doesn't matter if there's a genetic benefit to that because a gene itself can't be consciously selfish. So if it's right. manifesting its own survival through altruism, the altruism remains untouched. Yeah, there still is altruism because we classify the altruism based on the behavior, not based on its impact to the gene pool. But sadly, it was all still downhill for George Price. Altruism was not all he thought it was cracked up to be. This is a terrible realization for George Price because he's just become a Christian, evangelical Christian. And Christianity to him is all about love and giving. And yet his science, his own science, his own mathematics is telling him that there is no such thing as pure giving, as pure altruism and pure love. And so he decides that through his own behavior, he will prove that the human spirit can transcend his own miraculous mathematics, can transcend the dictates of evolution and of nature, and prove that there is in fact a genuine kindness and altruism out there. And so he goes out to the streets of London and begins helping all the vagabonds and down and outs and homeless people that he encounters, at first by just you know buying them a sandwich or giving them a pound or two, and then increasingly 
in a more involved way by helping them in the courts of law and in their scuffles with the police. And he writes to John Maynard Smith at one point, I'm down to my last 15p and I can't wait to get rid of them because this was proof to him that the human spirit could in fact transcend evolution. Finally, he gives away everything uh, and falls into the streets of London himself, becoming a homeless person and living rough on the benches of the various parks, sometimes taking shelter in uh, the train station at night. And all the while he's working on his mathematical equations. His paper appears in the pages of Nature, which is incredible. So even while he's homeless, he's still doing his science. But the psychological torment that has been shadowing him for years, it begins to take hold and George Price takes his own life. At his funeral, some weeks later, there are about 10 people, two of whom, Bill Hamilton and John Maynard Smith, are the great evolutionists of their age. And the rest are homeless people whom George had befriended on the streets of London and upon whom he had descended as a kind of angel to help them. These were the the handful of people who took George to his grave uh, on a cold January morning in 1975. What a story, Zoe. He paid the ultimate price, didn't he, for his passion? Yeah, he, he really did. And the mantra that competition is king, it, it still lives on to this day. I'll say it does. It lives large. It, it totally it lives on. lives on. There's but, a hopeful note here, though, because David Sloan Wilson's doing some interesting work. Yeah, he really is. So he's taking notions from evolutionary biology and applying them to schools, to neighbourhoods, to communities, uh, to try and develop communities that promote compassion and altruism and kindness over competition. So last words go to David. To apply evolutionary theory to our current lives uh, and all of the fast-paced changes taking place around us, in other words, cultural evolution, that's something that's very new. And we're only just coming to appreciate what Darwin always suspected. Darwin didn't know, but he his intuition told him this theory would explain uh, the length and breadth of humanity. I often say, imagine that you're a nice person, really nice, but unluckily for you, you're surrounded by not so nice people. So what could you do? You have four options. You can leave, maybe. You can try to convert those people around you, turn them nice. You could do that. You could defensively turn off your niceness, or you could remain nice and suffer the consequences. Those are your four options. And who would counsel a person to remain nice under those circumstances? What you need to do is you need to, of course, create social environments that rewards niceness. And if you do that, then you can get people to become more pro-social. You don't even have to teach them. They, they perceive their environment, and they basically they open up like a snail coming out of its shell. Very interesting practical work. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this week, Zoe. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. And Zoe is our Darren Osborne Regional Science Cadet this year. You can talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. And you can catch me on at Zoe underscore Keen. That's K-E-A-N. Catch you next week. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.